Book 2, Chapter 4 of the History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Meg. History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book 2, Chapter 4 Voyage to Cozumel Conversion of the Natives Jerónimo de Aguilar Army arrives at Tabasco Great battle with the Indians Christianity introduced Orders were given for the vessels to keep as near together as possible and to take the direction of the Capitana or Admiral's ship which carried a beacon light in the stern during the night, but the weather, which had been favorable, changed soon after their departure, and one of those tempests set in, which at this season are often found in the latitudes of the West Indies. It fell with terrible force on the little navy, scattering it far asunder, dismantling some of the ships, and driving them all considerably south of their proposed destination. Cortés, who had lingered behind to convoy a disabled vessel, reached the island of Cozumel last. On landing, he learned that one of his captains, Pedro de Alvarado, had availed himself of the short time he had been there to enter the temples, rifled them of their few ornaments, and by his violent conduct so far to terrify the simple natives, that they had fled for refuge into the interior of the island. Cortés, highly incensed at these rash proceedings, so contrary to the policy he had proposed, could not refrain from severely reprimanding his officer in the presence of the army. He commanded two Indian captives, taken by Alvarado, to be brought before him and explained to them the pacific purpose of his visit. This he did through the assistance of his interpreter, Melchorejo, a native of Yucatan who had been brought back by Grijalba and who, during his residence in Cuba, had picked up some acquaintance with the Castilian. He then dismissed them loaded with presents, and with an invitation to their countrymen to return to their homes without fear of further annoyance. This humane policy succeeded. The fugitives, reassured, were not slow in coming back, and an amicable intercourse was established in which Spanish cutlery and trinkets were exchanged for the gold ornaments of the natives, a traffic in which each party congratulated itself. A philosopher might think with equal reason, on outwitting the other. The first object of Cortés was to gather tidings of the unfortunate Christians who were reported to be still lingering in captivity on the neighboring continent, 
from some traders in the island he obtained such a confirmation of the report that he sent Diego de Ordaz with two brigantines to the opposite coast of Yucatan, with instructions to remain there eight days. Some Indians went as messengers in the vessels, who consented to bear a letter to the captives, informing them of the arrival of the countrymen in Cozumel, with a liberal ransom for their release. Meanwhile, the general proposed to make an excursion to the different parts of the island, that he might give employment to the restless spirits of the soldiers, and ascertain the resources of the country. It was poor and thinly peopled, but everywhere he recognized the vestiges of a higher civilization than what he had before witnessed in the Indian islands. The houses were some of them large and often built of stone and lime. He was particularly struck with the temples, in which were towers constructed of the same solid materials and rising several stories in height. In the court of one of these he was amazed by the sight of a cross, of a stone and lime, about ten palms high. It was the emblem of the god of rain. Its appearance suggested the wildest conjectures, not merely to the unlettered soldiers, but subsequently to the European scholar, who speculated on the character of the races that had introduced there the sacred symbol of Christianity. But no such inference as we shall see hereafter could be warranted. Yet it must be regarded as a curious fact that the cross should have been venerated as the object of religious worship, both in the New World and in regions of the Old where the light of Christianity had never risen. The next object of Cortés was to reclaim the natives from their gross idolatry and to substitute a purer form of worship. In accomplishing this, he was prepared to use force, if milder measures should be ineffectual. There was nothing which the Spanish government had more earnestly at heart than the conversion of the Indians. It forms a constant burden of their instructions, and gave to the military expeditions in this western hemisphere somewhat of the air of a crusade. The cavalier who embarked in them entered fully into these chivalrous and devotional feelings. No doubt was entertained of the efficacy of conversion, however sudden might be the change, or however violent the means. The sword was a good argument when the tongue failed, and the spread of Mahometanism had shown that seeds sown by the hand of violence, far from perishing in the ground, would spring up and bear fruit to after time.
if this were so in a bad cause, how much more would it be true in a good one? The Spanish cavalier felt he had a high mission to accomplish as a soldier of the cross. However, one authorized or one righteous the war into which he had entered may seem to us, to him, it was a holy war. He was in arms against the infidel, not to care for the soul of his benighted enemy was to put his own in jeopardy. The conversion of a single soul might cover a multitude of sins. It was not for morals that he was concerned, but for the faith. This, though understood in its most literal and limited sense, comprehended the whole scheme of Christian morality. Whoever died in the faith, however immoral had been his life, might be said to die in the Lord. Such was the creed of the Castilian knight of that day, as imbibed from the preachings of the pulpit, from cloisters and colleges at home, from monks and missionaries abroad, from all save one, Las Casas, whose devotion, kindled at a purer source, was not, alas, permitted to send forth its radiance far into the thick gloom by which he was encompassed. No one partook more fully of the feelings above described than Hernán Cortés. He was, in truth, the very mirror of the times in which he lived, reflecting its motley characteristics, its speculative devotion, and practical license, but with an intensity all his own. He was greatly scandalized at the exhibition of the idolatrous practices of the people of Cozumel, though untainted, as it would seem, with human sacrifices. He endeavored to persuade them to embrace a better faith through the agency of two ecclesiastics who attended the expedition, the licentiate Juan Diaz and Father Bartolomé de Olmedo. The latter of these godly men afforded the rare example, rare in any age, of the union of fervent zeal with charity, while he beautifully illustrated in his own conduct the precepts which he taught. He remained with the army through the whole expedition, and by his wise and benevolent counsels was often enabled to mitigate the cruelties of the conquerors, and to turn aside the edge of the sword from the unfortunate natives. These two missionaries vainly labored to persuade the people of Cozumel to renounce their abominations, and to allow the Indian idols, in which the Christians recognized the true lineaments of Satan, to be thrown down and demolished. The simple natives, filled with horror at the proposed profanation, exclaimed that these were the gods who sent them the sunshine and the storm, and should any violence be offered, 
they would be sure to avenge it by sending their lightnings on the heads of its perpetrators. Cortés was probably not much of a polemic. At all events, he preferred on the present occasion action to argument, and thought that the best way to convince the Indians of their error was to prove the falsehood of the prediction. He accordingly, without further ceremony, caused the venerated images to be rolled down the stairs of the great temple, amidst the groans and lamentations of the natives. An altar was hastily constructed, an image of the Virgin and Child placed over it, and Mass was performed by Father Olmedo and his reverend companion for the first time within the walls of a temple in New Spain. The patient ministers tried once more to pour the light of the gospel into the benighted understandings of the islanders and to expound the mysteries of the Catholic faith. The Indian interpreter must have afforded rather a dubious channel for the transmission of such abstruse doctrines, but they at length found favor with their auditors, who, whether overawed by the bold bearing of the invaders, or convinced of the impotence of deities that could not shield their own shrines from violation, now consented to embrace Christianity. While Cortés was thus occupied with the triumphs of the cross, he received intelligence that Ordaz had returned from Yucatán without tidings of the Spanish captives. Though much chagrined, the general did not choose to postpone longer his departure from Cozumel. The fleet had been well stored with provisions by the friendly inhabitants and embarking his troops, Cortés, in the beginning of March, took leave of his hospitable shores. The squadron had not proceeded far, however, before Alic, in one of the vessels, compelled them to return to the same port. The detention was attended with important consequences, so much so, indeed, that a writer of the time discerns in it a great mystery and a miracle. Soon after landing, a canoe with several Indians was seen making its way from the neighboring shores of Yucatan. On reaching the island, one of the men inquired, in broken Castilian, if he were among Christians, and being answered in the affirmative, threw himself on his knees and returned thanks to heaven for his delivery. He was one of the unfortunate captives for whose fate so much interest had been felt. His name was Jerónimo de Aguilar, a native of Ecija in Old Spain, where he had been regularly educated for the church. He had been established with the colony at Darien, and on a voyage from that place to Hispaniola, eight years previous, was wrecked near the coast of Yucatan. He escaped with several of his companions in the ship's boat, 
where some perished from hunger and exposure, while others were sacrificed on the reaching land by the cannibal natives of the peninsula. Aguilar was preserved from the same dismal fate by escaping into the interior, where he fell into the hands of a powerful cacique, who, though he spared his life, treated him at first with great rigor. The patience of the captive, however, and his singular humility touched the better feelings of the chieftain, who would have persuaded Aguilar to take a wife among his people. But the ecclesiastic steadily refused in obedience to his vows. This admirable constancy excited the distrust of the cacique, who put his virtue to a severe test by various temptations, and much of the same sort as those with which the devil is said to have assailed Saint Anthony. From all these fiery trials, however, like his ghostly predecessor, he came out unscorched. Continence is too rare and difficult a virtue with barbarians not to challenge their veneration, and the practice of it has made the reputation of more than one saint in the old as well as the new world. Aguilar was now entrusted with the care of his master's household and his numerous wives. He was a man of discretion as well as virtue, and his counsels were found so salutary that he was consulted on all important matters. In short, Aguilar became a great man among the Indians. It was with much regret, therefore, that his master received the proposals for his return to his countrymen, to which nothing but the rich treasure of glass beads, hog, bells, and other jewels of like value sent for his ransom would have induced him to consent. When Aguilar reached the coast, there had been so much delay that the brigantines had sailed, and it was owing to the fortunate return of the fleet to Cozumel that he was enabled to join it. On appearing before Cortés, the poor man saluted him in the Indian style, by touching the earth with his hand and carrying it to his head. The commander, raising him up, affectionately embraced him, covering him at the same time with his own cloak, as Aguilar was simply clad in the habiliments of the country, somewhat too scanty for a European eye. It was long, indeed, before the tastes which he had acquired in the freedom of the forest could be reconciled to the constraints either of dress or manners imposed by the artificial forms of civilization. Aguilar's long residence in the country had familiarized him with the Mayan dialects of Yucatan, and as he gradually revived his Castilian, he became of essential importance as an interpreter. 
for Ted saw the advantage of this from the first, but he could not fully estimate all the consequences that were to flow from it. The repairs of the vessels being at length completed, the Spanish commander once more took leave of the friendly natives of Cozumel, and set sail on the 4th of March. Keeping as near as possible to the coast of Yucatan, he doubled Cape Catoche, and with flowing sheets swept down the broad bay of Campeachi. He passed Potonchan, where Cordoba had experienced a rough reception from the natives, and soon after reached the mouth of the Rio de Tabasco, or Grijalba, in which that navigator had carried on so lucrative a traffic. Though mindful of the great object of his voyage, the visit to the Aztec territories, he was desirous of acquainting himself with the resources of this country, and determined to ascend the river and visit the great town on its borders. The water was so shallow from the accumulation of sand at the mouth of the stream that the general was obliged to leave the ships at anchor and to embark in the boats with a part only of his forces. The banks were thickly studded with mangrove trees that with their roots shooting up and interlacing one another form a kind of impervious screen or network behind which the dark forms of the natives were seen glancing to and fro with the most menacing looks and gestures. Cortés, much surprised at these unfriendly demonstrations, so unlike what he had reason to expect, moved cautiously up the stream. When he had reached an open place where a large number of Indians were assembled, he asked through his interpreter, leave to land, explaining at the same time his amicable intentions. But the Indians, brandishing their weapons, answered only with gestures of angry defiance. Though much chagrin, Cortés thought it best not to urge the matter further that evening, but withdrew to a neighboring island, where he disembarked his troops, resolved to effect a landing on the following morning. One day broke the Spaniards saw the opposite banks lined with a much more numerous array than on the preceding evening. While the canoes along the shore were filled with bands of armed warriors, Cortés now made his preparations for the attack. He first landed a detachment of a hundred men under Alonso de Avila at a point somewhat lower down the stream, sheltered by a thick grove of palms, from which a road, as he knew, led to the town of Tabasco, giving orders to his officer to march at once on the place, while he himself advanced to assault it in front. Then embarking the remainder of his troops, Cortés crossed the river in face of the enemy, but before commencing hostilities, that he might act with entire regard to justice and in obedience to the instructions of the royal consul. He first caused proclamation to be made through the interpreter 
that he desired only a free passage for his men, and that he proposed to revive the friendly relations which had formerly subsisted between his countrymen and the natives. He assured them that if blood were spilt, the sin would be on their heads, and that resistance would be useless since he was resolved at all hazards to take up his quarters that night in the town of Tabasco. This proclamation, delivered in lofty tone and duly recorded by the notary, was answered by the Indians, who might possibly have comprehended one word in ten of it, with shouts of defiance and a shower of arrows. Cortés, having now complied with all the requisitions of a loyal cavalier and shifted the responsibility from his own shoulders to those of the royal council, brought his boats alongside of the Indian canoes. They grappled fiercely together, and both parties were soon in the water, which rose above the turtle. The struggle was not long, though desperate. The superior strength of the Europeans prevailed, and they forced the enemy back to land. Here, however, they were supported by their countrymen, who showered down darts, arrows, and blazing billets of wood on the heads of the invaders. The banks were soft and slippery, and it was with difficulty the soldiers made good their footing. Cortés lost a sandal in the mud, but continued to fight barefoot with great exposure of his person, as the Indians who soon singled out the leader called to one another, a strike at the chief. At length the Spaniards gained the bank and were able to come into something like order when they opened a brisk fire from their arquebuses and crossbows. The enemy astounded by the roar and flash of the firearms, of which they had had no experience, fell back and retreated behind a breastwork of timber, thrown across the way. The Spaniards, hot in the pursuit, soon carried these rude defenses and drove the Tabascans before them towards the town, where they again took shelter behind their palisades. Meanwhile, Avila had arrived from the opposite quarter, and the natives, taken by surprise, made no further attempt at resistance, but abandoned the place to the Christians. They had previously removed their families and effects. Some provisions fell into the hands of the victors, but little gold, a circumstance, says Las Casas, which gave them no particular satisfaction. It was a very populous place. The houses were mostly of mud, the better sort of stone and lime, affording proofs in the inhabitants of a superior refinement to that found in the islands, as their stout resistance had given evidence of superior valor. Cortés, having thus made himself master of the town, took formal possession of it for the crown of Castile. He gave three cuts 
with his sword on a large sabred tree which grew in the place, and proclaimed aloud that he took possession of the city in the name and on behalf of the Catholic sovereigns, and would maintain and defend the same with sword and buckler against all who should gainsay it. The same vaunting declaration was also made by the soldiers, and the whole was duly recorded and attested by the notary. This was the usual simple but chivalric form with which the Spanish cavaliers asserted their royal title to the conquered territories in the New World. It was a good title, doubtless, against the claims of any other European potentate. The general took up his quarters that night in the courtyard of the principal temple. He posted his sentinels and took all the precautions practiced in wars with a civilized foe. Indeed, there was reason for them. A suspicious silence seemed to reign through the place and its neighborhood, and tidings were brought that the interpreter, Mechorejo, had fled, leaving his Spanish dress hanging on a tree. Cortés was disquieted by the desertion of this man who would not only inform his countrymen of the small number of the Spaniards but dissipate any illusions that might be entertained of their superior natures. On the following morning, as no traces of the enemy were visible, Cortés ordered out a detachment under Alvarado and another under Francisco de Lugo to reconnoiter. The latter officer had not advanced a league before he learned the position of the Indians, by their attacking him in such force that he was fain to take shelter in a large stone building, where he was closely besieged. Fortunately, the loud yells of the assailants, like most barbarous nations seeking to strike terror by their ferocious cries, reached the ears of Alvarado and his men, who speedily, advancing to the relief of their comrades, enabled them to force a passage through the enemy. Both parties retreated closely pursued on the town, when Cortés, marching out to their support, compelled the Tabascans to retire. A few prisoners were taken in this skirmish. By then Cortés found his worst apprehensions verified. The country was everywhere in arms. A force consisting of many thousands had assembled from the neighboring provinces, and a general assault was resolved on for the next day. To the general's inquiries why he had been received in so different a manner from his predecessor, Rijalva, they answered that the conduct of the Tabascans then had given great offense to the other Indian tribes, who taxed them with treachery and cowardice, so that they had promised on any return of the white men to resist them in the same manner as their neighbors had done. Cortés might now well regret that he had allowed himself to deviate from the direct 
object of his enterprise, and to become entangled in a doubtful war, which could lead to no profitable result. But it was too late to repent. He had taken the step, and had no alternative but to go forward. To retreat would dishearten his own men at the outset, impair their confidence in him as their leader, and confirm their arrogance of his foes, the tidings of whose success might precede him on his voyage, and prepare the way for greater mortifications and defeats. He did not hesitate as to the course he was to pursue, but calling his officers together, announced his intention to give battle the following morning. He sent back to the vessels such as were disabled by their wounds, and ordered the remainder of the forces to join the camp. Six of the heavy guns were also taken from the ships, together with all the horses. The animals were stiff and torpid from long confinement on board, but a few hours' exercise restored them to their strength and usual spirit. He gave the command of the artillery, if it may be dignified with the name, to a soldier named Mesa, who had acquired some experience as an engineer in the Italian wars. The infantry he put under the orders of Diego de Ordaz, and took charge of the cavalry himself. It consisted of some of the most valiant gentlemen of his little band, among whom may be mentioned Alvarado, Velázquez de León, Ávila, Puerto Carrero, Olit, Montejo. Having thus made all the necessary arrangements and settled his plan of battle, he retired to rest, but not to a slumber. His feverish mind, as may well be imagined, was filled with anxiety for the morrow, which might decide the fate of his expedition, and as was his wont on such occasions, he was frequently observed during the night going the rounds and visiting the sentinels to see that no one slept upon his post. At the first glimmering of light he mustered his army and declared his purpose not to abide, coop up in the town the assault of the enemy, but to march at once against him, for he well knew that the spirits rise with action, and that the attacking party gathers a confidence from the very movement, which is not felt by the one who is passively, perhaps anxiously, awaiting the assault. The Indians were understood to be encamped on a level ground a few miles distant from the city, called the Plain of Ceutla. The general commanded that Ordaz should march with the foot, including the artillery directly across the country, and attack them in front, while he himself would fetch a circuit with a horse, and turn their flank when thus engaged, or fall upon their rear. These dispositions being completed, the little army heard mass and then sallied forth from the wooden walls of Tabasco, 
It was Lady Day, the 25th of March, long memorable in the annals of New Spain. The district around the town was checkered with patches of maize, and on the lower level with plantations of cacao, supplying the beverage and perhaps the coin of the country, as in Mexico. These plantations, requiring constant irrigation, were fed by numerous canals and reservoirs of water, so that the country could not be traversed without great toil and difficulty. It was, however, intersected by a narrow path or causeway over which the cannon could be tracked. The troops advanced more than a league on their laborious march without descrying the enemy. The weather was sultry, but few of them were embarrassed by the heavy mail worn by the European cavaliers at that period. Their cotton jackets, thickly quilted, afforded a tolerable protection against the arrows of the Indian, and allowed room for the freedom and activity of movement essential to a life of rambling adventure in the wilderness. At length they came in sight of the broad plains of Ceuta, and beheld the dusky lines of the enemy stretching as far as the eye could reach along the edge of the horizon. The Indians had shown some sagacity in the choice of their position, and as the weary Spaniards came slowly on, floundering through the morass, the Tabascans set up their hideous battle cries and discharged volleys of arrows, stones and other missiles, which rattled like hell on the shields and helmets of the assailants. Many were severely wounded before they could gain the firm ground, where they soon cleared a space for themselves, and opened a heavy fire of artillery and musketry on the dense columns of the enemy, which presented a fatal mark for the balls. Numbers were swept down at every discharge, but the bold barbarians, far from being dismayed, threw up dust and leaves to hide their losses and sounding their war instruments shot off fresh flights of arrows in return. They even pressed closer on the Spaniards and when driven off by a vigorous charge soon turned again and rolling back like the waves of the ocean seemed ready to overwhelm the little band by weight of numbers. Thus cramped the latter had scarcely room to perform their necessary evolutions, or even to work their guns with effect. The engagement had now lasted more than an hour, and the Spaniards, sorely pressed, looked with great anxiety for the arrival of the horse, which some unaccountable impediments must have detained, to relieve them from their perilous position. At this crisis, the furthest columns of the Indian army were seen to be agitated and thrown into a disorder that rapidly spread through the whole mass. It was not long before the ears of the Christians were saluted with the cheering war cry of San Diego and San Pedro, 
and they beheld the bright helmets and swords of the Castilian chivalry flashing back the rays of the morning sun as they dashed through the ranks of the enemy, striking to the right and left, and scattering dismay around them. The eye of faith indeed could discern the patron saint of Spain himself, mounted on his grey war horse, heading the rescue and trampling over the bodies of the fallen infidels. The approach of Cortés had been greatly retarded by the broken nature of the ground. When he came up, the Indians were so hotly engaged that he was upon them before they observed his approach. He ordered his men to direct their lances at the faces of their opponents, who terrified at the monstrous apparition, for they supposed the rider and the horse which they had never before seen to be one and the same, were seized with a panic. Ordaz availed himself of it to command a general charge along the line, and the Indians, many of them throwing away their arms, fled without attempting further resistance. Cortés was too content with the victory to care to follow it up by dipping his sword in the blood of the fugitives, he drew off his men to a copse of palms, which skirted the place, and under their broad canopy the soldiers offered up thanksgiving to the Almighty for the victory vouchsafed them. The field of battle was made the site of a town, called in honor of the day on which the action took place. Santa Maria de la Vitoria, long afterwards the capital of the province. The number of those who fought or fell in the engagement is altogether doubtful. Nothing indeed is more uncertain than numerical estimates of barbarians, and they gain nothing in probability when they come, as in the present instance, from the reports of their enemies. Most accounts, however, agree that the Indian force consisted of five squadrons of eight thousand men each. There is more discrepancy as to the number of slain, varying from one to thirty thousand. In this monstrous discordance, the common disposition to exaggerate may lead us to look for truth in the neighborhood of the smallest number. The loss of the Christians was inconsiderable, not exceeding, if we received their own reports, probably from the same causes much diminishing the truth, two killed and less than a hundred wounded. We may readily comprehend the feelings of the conquerors when they declared that heaven must have fought on their side, since their own strength could never have prevailed against such a multitude of enemies. Several prisoners were taken in the battle, among them two chiefs. Cortés gave them their liberty, and sent a message by them to their countrymen, that he would overlook the past if they would come in at once and tender their submission. Otherwise he would ride over the land and put every living thing in it, man, 
women and child to the sword, with this formidable menace ringing in their ears, the envoys departed. But the Tabascans had no relish for further hostilities. A body of inferior chiefs appeared the next day, clad in dark dresses of cotton, intimating their abject condition, and implored leave to bury their dead. It was granted by the general, with many assurances of his friendly disposition, but at the same time he told them he expected their principal caciques as he would treat with none other. These soon presented themselves, attended by a numerous train of vassals, who followed with timid curiosity to the Christian camp. Among their propitiatory gifts were twenty female slaves, which from the character of one of them proved of infinitely more consequence than was anticipated by either Spaniards or Tabascans. Confidence was soon restored and was succeeded by a friendly intercourse and the interchange of Spanish toys for the rude commodities of the country, articles of food, cotton, and a few gold ornaments of little value. When asked where the precious metal was procured, they pointed to the west and answered, Culua, Mexico. The Spaniards saw this was no place for them to traffic or to tarry in. Yet here they were not many leagues distant from a potent and opulent city, or what once had been so, the ancient Palenque. But its glory may have even then passed away, and its name have been forgotten by the surrounding nations. Before his departure, the Spanish commander did not omit to provide for one great watchet of his expedition, the conversion of the Indians. He first represented to the Cossacks that he had been sent thither by a powerful monarch on the other side of the water, to whom he had now a right to claim their allegiance. He then caused the reverend fathers Olmedo and Diaz to enlighten their minds as far as possible in regard to the great truths of revelation, urging them to receive this in place of their own heathenish abominations. The Tabascans, whose perceptions were no doubt materially quickened by the discipline they had undergone, made but a faint resistance to either proposal. The next day was Palm Sunday, and the general resolved to celebrate their conversion by one of those pompous ceremonials of the church, which should make a lasting impression on their minds. A solemn procession was formed of the whole army with the ecclesiastics at their head, each soldier bearing a palm branch in his hand. The concourse was swelled by thousands of Indians of both sexes, who followed in curious astonishment at the spectacle. The long files bent their way through the flowery 
Servanus, that bordered the settlement, to the principal temple, where an altar was raised, and the image of the presiding deity was deposed to make room for that of the Virgin, with the infant Saviour. Mass was celebrated by Father Olmedo, and the soldiers who were capable joined in the solemn chant. The natives listened in profound silence, and if we may believe the chronicler of the event who witnessed it, were melted into tears, while their hearts were penetrated with reverential awe for the God of those terrible beings who seemed to wield in their own hands the thunder and the lightning. These solemnities concluded, Cortés prepared to return to his ships, well satisfied with the impression made on the new converts, and with the conquests he had thus achieved for Castile and Christianity. The soldiers, taking leave of their Indian friends, entered the boats with the palm branches in their hands, and descending the river, re-embarked on board their vessels which rode at anchor at its mouth. A favorable breeze was blowing, and the little navy, opening its sails to receive it, was soon on its way again to the golden shores of Mexico. End of Book 2, Chapter 4